0: Hello and welcome to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. This is episode 12 of the most influential weekly podcast to come out of the Saskatchewan business community. On each episode, Paul Martin, business commentator and the chair of Martin Charlton Communications brings us the stories behind the headlines and explains why each story matters to you. On today's episode, we take a moment to look at growth, where it comes from, the different opportunities, and the lasting impacts that come from it. Paul, welcome back. It's episode 12. We're we're on the roll to the holidays, and I can't think of much that really inspires people than the opportunity to grow as the new year approaches.
1: You're absolutely right about uh, the new year being a psychological point, and it uh, is when business people in particular spend a lot of time on strategy and planning and budgeting, and uh, growth is always top, top line, I mean, front and center on that stuff. So business leaders are often challenged or managers are challenged with what's your growth plan for next year and how are you going to make this happen? Well, growth really comes in in a very limited number of ways, actually, in business. There's sort of three primary ones. You get your organic growth, which is the existing customer base just buys more from you. Part of that's inflationary and just price increases and stuff. So you get more revenue, but it's likely the least dramatic of all of the growth. And it's one that I think a lot of businesses get trapped in i call it uh, just sort of floating along right the, you want to use an analogy of, uh, of putting a boat in the uh, out the you know out to sea or something and you You say one one view is, well, let's just see where the current takes us. So you just float along and and away you go. And the captain is uh, watching for weather and will say, bring it on. I'll deal with this. I'll react. I'll respond to changing market conditions. To me, that's all about management, not leading. And so the leaders are the ones who actually set a destination and then they chart this destination or select one and then they chart a course and set sail for it. So they're actually not just drifting. They're going somewhere. That's more about – uh, the leadership piece. So so when we look at the growth strategy, the organic one is the least exciting, it's the safest, it's the most boring, and it's the one that a lot of businesses gravitate to because it's the easiest, right? Another one is I add a product line. So I can go uh, just, the way I'm going to grow is I, I put some new product line in and go back and sell that to my existing customers or find new ones. Uh, a third one is add geography, open in another market. And uh, and I said there were three, but there probably is a fourth if you think about, uh, another option for growth is just take out the competitor, just buy them. Uh, I buy up their customer list, their staff, their, uh, uh, you know, production capacity, their factories or whatever. But, Clearly, the last three are much more uh, exciting and will bring bigger, more dramatic uh, results to an organization. And what I want to focus on today is, is the second one, which is to add some geography. And I wanted to talk about a a Saskatchewan story that really is a a great microcosm or an example of how this gets done. And that was the steel mill in Regina, Ipsco. And uh, this, you know, it's now called Everaz and owned uh, by a different outfit, but originally began as a, a, a kind of a, Well, the the government was clearly involved in it. Uh, This was the Douglas government. And uh, so it was one that had a very aggressive and active uh, willingness to participate in the ownership of businesses. And at one point, uh, Ipsco was uh, started as a pipe mill. And they were buying the steel from the big steel makers in central Canada. They felt that they were being gouged by those guys. So let's maybe we'll build our own steel mill to feed our pipe mill. And the pipe mill was really about the oil industry expanding and opening up back in that, that era, in the late 50s, early 60s. So the steel mill came along, didn't work very well in the beginning, uh, kind of actually went broke. And uh, the pipe mill had to buy the steel mill in a reverse takeover. And uh, that was how it became Interprovincial Pipe and Steel Corporation, or Ipsco. So that's where the name came from. And, uh, you know, it kind of motored along a very distinct and unique kind of operation. They chose not to hire anybody really of any consequence out of the existing steel industry, Uh, because they just felt they could do it better. And they used, uh, you know, in a way, they just harnessed farming ingenuity. They had a lot of farmer, uh, you know, kids who grew up on a farm that would come to work at this place. They had a lot of technical, just savvy. And uh, they were able to make steel probably differently than just about anybody else. So fast forward to its 25th anniversary and the CEO of the day was uh, was a guy named McClellan who had become, he had been the CFO when he became CEO. Very interesting guy, very smart guy, but he challenged the board of directors and he said, here's the question you guys need to answer is Western Canada is our oyster right now. Uh, Ipsco was the big fish in the Western Canadian pond, the only steel mill. So he said we are the big fish in this little pond and you have to decide is that good enough or do you think that we have created something here that has a secret sauce that we could replicate somewhere else. So and here's here's was the thinking. There is a circle around a steel mill which you can work in. And steel as you not, I guess you don't have to guess very hard on this one it's heavy and it costs a lot to ship it. And I remember, uh, uh, I wrote extensively on this, actually wrote a book on the history of the company and, and Roger Phillips, who was a subsequent uh, CEO said, here's an example. Uh, and I don't remember the dates that this was going on, but you know, it was $50 a ton to rail steel, put it on the, on the rail, rail car and move it from Regina to Minneapolis. Then you would transfer it to a boat, a barge, and put it on the Missouri and then the Mississippi River. And they had a processing plant down in Houston. He said it would be seven bucks a ton to move it from Minneapolis to Houston. So the price of moving stuff on water was dramatically lower than moving it on land. And so, as a consequence, you got to a certain point uh, far away from your mill where you were no longer competitive because the competitor somewhere else could land that steel cheaper. So you had to decide how big is our circle, and then and this is what the CEO of the day said to the board. Do you think we can make another circle and another circle and another circle, or do we stay static? So the board decided that they did indeed have some secret sauce, and they thought they could do it. So they, uh, uh, and, and the CEO of the day said, excellent, I agree. But he said, I'm not the guy to lead that, which I thought was a pretty cool uh initiative on his part to recognize I'm the bean counter guy I'm I will manage and maintain but when it comes to growth and expansion we need a different personality at the helm and that's when Roger Phillips got hired and I remember interviewing Phillips about this and he said yeah here I come I came out of Alcan he says you know out of the big Quebec firm and and he said I had a reputation for building stuff so I land in Regina and and uh with a mission to expand this this plant into other, this company into other locations. And he said, the first day I started was the day Pierre Trudeau brought in the national energy program and the oil industry collapsed, which was our primary customer in Canada. And on this first day, he said, here I am the builder on my first day. I laid off 400 guys. I was actually contracting the company, not building it. He said it was 10 years till we got back to where we could actually start to grow this thing again. And where they decided after 10 years to grow was the first location was in Iowa. And that's on the, the Mississippi River, a little place called Muscatine. And uh, and at the time, they were just, the, the U.S. steel market was in a in a change. There was a little firm called Nucor that was uh, starting to Uh, raise its elbows in the corners and flex its muscle. And Nucor was making thin plate steel that was primary destined for the automotive market. So they were feeding Detroit and they were killing the old guys, the old established companies. And Ipsco came along and they took on a little different part of the market, but they went nose to nose, head to head with Bethlehem Steel out of Pittsburgh. And in the end, Ipsco killed Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was one of the big names, you know. And so this little upstart no-name company in Saskatchewan had profoundly changed the landscape in the U.S. steel industry. But getting there was way more challenging than just saying, hey, let's relocate or let's open a second plant. At the time, because of the shift going on, you know, there was a, a belief in the steel industry, certainly from the legacy companies, that if you didn't have a blast furnace, you really weren't a steel player. You were just some, you were you know, these little electric arc furnaces that Ipsco and Nucor were using were kind of, well, that's the stuff kids played with not grown-ups. And uh, so what they did is they would take scrap steel, put it in a basically a bucket, and put in two electrodes, two probes, like welding rods, one at each end of the pot, and fire it up, and it would create so much heat, it would melt that, that steel, and then they would pour it. And so... Ipsco was coming into – it was a a small Saskatchewan Canadian company, didn't really have a big reputation in the U.S. They were going to try and and, uh, blast this up. So they needed some kind of credibility down there. And at the same time, as the industry was starting to realize – Hmm. Maybe blast furnaces aren't the real answer. Maybe, you know, the guys who manufactured blast furnaces, the principal one was out of Germany. They said, we better figure out how to play in this little electric arc game or we're going to get left you know, behind. So they needed a first project. So these two companies got together. Ipsco retained the guys from Germany, and then they got a fixed-price contract, and off they went. Well, it turned out to be just a jackpot. Uh, The Germans really didn't know how to do this. It was way over budget, way over timelines, and thankfully, Ipsco had done. signed a, a fixed price contract so the Germans were paying all of the fees for, you know, the the delays and whatever. But they got so frustrated that they said, we're going to build another one of these things. We're going to build it in Mobile, Alabama, which is on the Gulf Coast and kind of just over from uh, the Mississippi. And they decided they're not going to get the Germans to build this one. They'll build their own. They got it done before the, the Iowa one which started two years earlier, was completed. So it was a very interesting story. And it was, you know, because they disrupted the market so much and had really claimed such a big chunk of the market share, their stock price really began to take off and ultimately became a takeover target and the company was picked up and it was bought at an exorbitant price, in fact, probably too high uh, because the uh, the, I think it was the Scandinavian company that bought them. They ended up having to tear the company apart and sell the parts because they overpaid for it. So the Canadian assets were then sold to Evraz, which is the Russian manufacturer, and uh, the American ones, uh, American-based assets went to a different direction. So that's how the Everest name came to be in the Regino operation, and uh, it, but it was a it, it's a lesson for all of us in how you go about doing expansion and when you think about how do I grow, most of us tend to want to respond back to I just figure out how to increase my sales to my existing customer base. But really, I would say, you know, don't forget there is the option to take out the competitor, which is what happened to Ipsco in the end, uh, or to look at new geography, or to just add a completely new product line. And that's where you need R&D and an invention, you know, a skunk works kind of operation inside your business so that people are inventing new products for you. And uh, if you find you can't invent them, then you have to go buy them somewhere else. But this was the the decision to do exactly what we do. We have a secret sauce that is actually palatable or successful enough that we can transpose this into a new geography. And that's the the, the piece that I think, uh, you know, kind of reflecting our title of this uh, podcast, the Saskatchewan Matters. Here's this little Saskatchewan example that really had impact that was felt all across North America.
0: And we cannot underestimate the long-term impact of being business-minded, knowing your market, knowing that there are opportunities out there. Even when you think that everything's being done already or there's an incumbent, it doesn't mean necessarily just because there's an incumbent that there's not space for you. I mean, the success of Evraz when they um, picked up Ipsco's plate and tubular business was back in, I think, 2008. And if you roll back Evraz all the way to its relatively humble russian beginnings back in 1992 it wasn't really started with with hard businessmen it was started with scientists and engineers who knew that they had a great core idea and then they went on a process of their growth was acquisition 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 until um 2011 they got listed on the um footsie index which is at the london stock exchange and it's just going from strength to strength. Different markets, different products, growth, stability. It's it's a real success story, and Saskatchewan is a core part of this, you know, this big conglomerate.
1: There's no question about it, and, uh, you know, there's no uh, guarantee that um – this you can just sort of hold us bolus to this i mean this was a really great example of the scandinavians coming in and overpaying for it and there was a lot of hubris at the time the market was on a rocket ride and you know you couldn't go wrong and and then they overpaid for it and uh, there were certainly a lot of people in saskatchewan who became extremely wealthy uh, because of that transaction because you know it obviously had a big saskatchewan following but this is a you know. The story of Ipsco was an interesting one because it started with really public sector financing and uh, then you know was moved over to more of the private sector side. And it was uh, the Douglas administration that uh, was called on more than once to backstop it with bonds or guarantees or whatever. Ultimately, it did find its legs and through the Blakeney years. Uh, and blakeney came out of the uh what was called the ido the industrial development office so he ran that for douglas and then douglas saw that uh, blakeney was a lawyer from nova scotia who'd been transplanted into saskatchewan and said you know this young guy has got some some horsepower so talked him into running and got him elected and then uh Blakeney was actually the minister of health who brought in uh, Medicare in Saskatchewan and opened up public health care in Canada. Later went on to become premier in 71 and uh, through the 70s was there were two Western Canadian premiers of some substance. Uh, Peter Lougheed was in Alberta and, and Blakeney was in Saskatchewan. And Pierre Trudeau was prime minister. And they always talked about Trudeau's intellectual capability, that uh, Jesuit trained, you know, an intellect. Well, you put Blakeney across the table from him, he had an equal intellect because a very academic. And uh, Lougheed had, was, you know, had, was no slouch there either, but had a very sound understanding of uh, how the world worked too. And so those two guys uh, going head-to-head with Trudeau, you know i was just a punk reporter covering politics in those days and it was such a treat to uh, to watch them spar at federal provincial tables I and mean, it's not something we see right now uh, where this prime minister did not adopt his father's mode of meeting regularly with premiers where in the pierre trudeau era it was almost like every 2 months there was a federal provincial leadership leaders conference and so there were four names that were really uh, of any fun to watch Blakeney and Lougheed representing the West, and then Trudeau representing Canada and uh, with a leg in Quebec, and then Rennie Levesque, the Quebec premier, who was flamboyant and, you know, really big personality and, and, uh, you know, would always push the envelope and was uh, kind of the skunk of the garden party oftentimes. And, and uh, it was, you know, it was great fun for reporters to cover. And I, I don't think we truly appreciated at the day, just what we were witnessing at the time, but I guess that is such as the way for reporters. What do they say? News is just history in the making and you don't understand the history sometimes until sometime later.
0: It's a, Amazing thing when you look at the purpose of news reporters being the, you know, the the history writers of the day, the contemporaneous ones. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for this episode. It's been fascinating. It's delved into a part of Saskatchewan history, which I didn't appreciate with all of those intricacies. And I'm so glad that I know about that now. I am going to go straight off and get myself onto the internet to do some more digging on that. That is truly, truly fascinating. Thank you so much for this. And thank you for taking the time to listen to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. Do share these insights that power Saskatchewan with your friends and colleagues. Saskatchewan Matters is proud to be a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network.